Thank you, brother, for that song. It's so fitting. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed. There we find peace. And again, I pray and trust that you are finding peace with God tonight. Peace with your issues. Peace with whatever God is dealing with you. There is peace, perfect peace in knowing God. As we, we kneel, with, kneel before him at our personal altars, there will be peace. <clears throat> I want to thank you for your fellowship, for your kindness and generosity this weekend. It's been a marvelous thing. We have thoroughly enjoyed it. And we will leave from here with many warm, precious memories of our fellowship with you. You've been so kind, your encouragements. I just want you to know that you're much loved. And we thank you so much for the opportunity of being here and getting to know you all. And you're welcome to come to our area too, whenever you have the opportunity. Uh, one thing I do want to say, I want to clear something up I said last evening. I made the comment that Jesus went to hell for us. And several of you... Uh, Ask me about that, and I appreciate you asking because it was, it was not a clear statement. I do not believe that Jesus literally went to hell, but I do believe that when he was, what I was trying to say, what I meant to say, was that when Jesus hung on the cross, he went, his experience was like hell for us. When the rich man was in, in, the, uh, in hell, there in Luke 16, remember he said, just bring me a drop of water. He was thirsty. Jesus on the cross said, I thirst. And the, the rich man said, the rich man was told in hell that there's a great gulf between him and paradise. He, the, you can't go across there. And when Jesus hung on the cross, there were six hours of darkness. So God turned his back. And God, Jesus cried out, said, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus went to the cross, he experienced hell for us. That's the good news that we have to share. That's what I intended to say by that statement. So I appreciate you, some of you, questioning me about that. And I want you to be free, feel free to, to question anything I say. I'm not divine. And I could well say something incorrectly or, not, or at least wrong. And, and so don't take what I say, but take it to the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to teach you and to guide you. Uh, hopefully what I say will be an, an assistance but don't take what I say. Take what the Word of God says and what the Holy Spirit teaches you. I want to uh, also make mention of the, uh, the promise there that Brother uh, Richard uh, read. Jesus' words, ask and it shall be given you. That's a marvelous promise. That's something that no other God has. I was on the airplane flying and a man beside me was uh, from India. And I got to asking him this several years ago about his culture and his life. And I was testifying to him. And I said, tell me about your gods. And he said, well, I said, how many gods do you have? He said, over 300,000. I said, what? Over 300,000 gods? That's what he said. I, I still find it hard to believe. I said, how could you worship? Or how could you have so many gods? How do you know which one to worship? Well, he said, when something bad happens, you have to figure out which God is angry at you. Can you imagine the bondage? Can you imagine the insecurity? We have a God that we ask and he answers. <laughs> he answers prayer. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and ye, it will be opened unto you. It's definite. It's sure. We have to seek. But when we seek, he, he, he answers. He, he helps us find. And I want to encourage you in your, your private altar, your, your quiet time with God. Uh, <clears throat> and when you read the word of God, uh, ask God to teach you and show you from his word actually what you can do. If, if you don't look for anything, you won't find anything. 
That's how it works. God will get as serious with us as we get with him. I really believe that. In fact, that was in the one song we sang. Uh, those who wholly trust him uh, will find that he wholly, it, it, it's, it's reciprocated. When we fully trust him, then it comes back to us. And, and so God is, gets as serious with us as we get with him. And I want to encourage you in your Bible reading, if, if you want something that will liven it up, and I trust that it's already a, a living experience for you, but something that has been such a blessing for me, and I want to share this with you. Someone else share it with me. I'm just passing it on to you. Uh, whatever question you're facing, maybe you're considering a new job. Maybe you're considering buying another home. Maybe you're considering a move to somewhere, or maybe you, uh, some change in your life, or maybe have, whatever question is, whatever issue you have, write it on a piece of paper. And, and just think, what would you ask God if you had five minutes with him? If God in person would come and sit beside you and say to you, okay, I will answer anything you have to ask me, anything at all, what question would you ask God? Write that question on a piece of paper, put it in your Bible. And when you read the Bible, you look for answers to that question. Seek and you will find. Knock, it will be opened unto you. I guarantee it. God's promised it and it will happen. It's happened for me many times and it'll happen for you too. You'll find a phrase, you'll find a verse, you'll find a passage, you'll find something in the word of God that relates to what your question is and you'll find solutions to move forward. I wanna encourage you in your Bible reading and, and, and your personal quiet time with God. If we ask, he does answer. It certainly is true. <clears throat> so thank you for that, uh, that verse here tonight. This evening, I thought I would uh, uh, maybe switch gears a little bit. <clears throat> I'd like to uh, uh, look at David's life in 2 Samuel and draw some lessons from his life concerning our relationship with our children, our relationship with people around us. There's a lot to be learned. There's a lot to know from the Word of God. And again, the Word of God is a, is a book of answers. There's answers here for every question we have. It doesn't matter what it is. You'll find answers in the Word of God. Now, you won't find Gladys, Virginia in this, in the, written in the Bible. You won't find Rustburg. You won't find the name Virginia. You may not find your name, but I guarantee you, if you seek God with all your heart, you will find answers for the issues you're facing, the questions you have. And, and so whatever questions we have, we take it to the Word of God, and He answers us. That's, that's very true for child training and child raising. There's answers there for us. The Bible's full of them. If we seek for them, we'll find them. <clears throat> I'd like to look at David's life here and explore some of that here this evening. And in, in as far as relating to our children, <clears throat> not sure how I want to title this. Maybe just David and his family. But <clears throat> uh, to, in preface to what I want to say here about David, I want to say something about our children. God has made us three parts. He's made us body, soul, and spirit, right? You, you know that. You're with me there. Our body, of course, is that part of us that you can see. Our soul is our mind, our will, and emotions. And our spirit is that part where God lives. And so when we have children, our children have needs in all three areas. They have physical needs. They have emotional needs. They have spiritual needs. And so as parents, we need to exercise wisdom and understanding and give our children uh, uh, provide for them in those three areas. Now, those three areas, which one would you say is the easiest to provide? Physical needs, emotional needs, or spiritual needs? Physical. Physical. I would agree with that. 
If your children are hungry, give them something to eat. If they're cold, give them a coat. You know, our physical needs are relatively easy to meet, especially in the society in which we live. We have resources and we can meet our children's physical needs quite easily. Now, which of those should we meet first? Well, let me put it this way. Which of those is most important to meet? Physical, spiritual, or emotional? This is not a trick question. Just think it through. Which would you say is most important? Physical, spiritual, or emotional? Spiritual. spiritual. I would agree with that. Because if our children don't, don't learn to know the Lord Jesus Christ, they won't make it to heaven. If they don't realize they have sinned and, and need to repent, they won't make it to heaven. They need to come to Christ. They need to know Christ personally. That's their spiritual need. And we need to help them understand that. That's our, one of our callings as parents, to bring them to the foot of the cross and introduce them to Jesus Christ. Teach them how to pray. Teach them the Bible stories. Teach them the way to God. That's very important. I would say that's the most important of those three. Now, which of those three should we meet first? That's a little harder, isn't it? <clears throat> Okay, okay, that's right. If they're, if they're crying and hungry, they're not going to listen to you spiritually. It's also true if we don't meet their emotional needs, they're not going to listen to us spiritually either. Did you know when God works with us, he meets our emotional needs first? It tells us in 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. Thank you. Love is what? What kind of a need? Is that emotional, spiritual, or physical? That's an emotional need. When God loves us, when he opened up his heart to us, and his love came down, and, it, and we felt his love warming our hearts and drawing us to himself, we respond back in love, right? Because our emotional need, is, our emotional need for love is met. So God meets our emotional need first, and then we open our, up our heart to him, and he can feed us spiritually. That's how it is with our children as well. And I want to say that I think it's a law. If we fail to meet our, the emotional needs of our children, we probably will not have the opportunity to meet their spiritual needs either. How many children, how many young people have you heard say, my father didn't love me, my parents didn't love me, and they wandered off and found someone that did love them, and that's where they got their spiritual input. Sometimes the reason our children wander away from us is because their emotional needs are not being met. That's a general statement, <clears throat> but that, I want to say that to preface what I'm going to say here about David tonight and Absalom, but, but I, I really believe that's true. If, if we fail to meet the emotional needs of our children, we probably won't have the opportunity to meet their spiritual needs either. But as their emotional needs are met, they're going to come to us and want to know more from us. They want to open, they'll open their hearts to us, and we'll be able to minister to them in other ways as well. <clears throat> in 2 Samuel 12, or 11, sorry, 2 Samuel 11, we have one of the saddest chapters in David's life. It's the story of, of David falling into sin with Bathsheba. It was a time of, of uh, uh, spiritual coldness in David's life. <clears throat> For reasons that aren't explained here, he, did, he was not out with his armies as he normally would have been. He was relaxing. He was lethargic. He wasn't up front and providing leadership. He was... Resting in his laurels. He, had, he, he sat back and was uh, just resting. <clears throat> he, 
he was not being proactive for the Lord here. And, and Satan set a trap for him and he fell for it. He fell into sin with Bathsheba. And in, in, in uh, committing that sin, how many of David's, uh, how many of the Ten Commandments did David break? Mention some. Covet? Kill? Steal? Bear false witness? Right? He hid his sin for a long time. How about the second commandment? How about the first commandment? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Another thing that, pardon? Yes, that's seven of that's six of them right there, six out of ten. And Bathsheba's grandfather was Ahithophel, one of David's chief counselors, one of the men that David looked to for advice and counsel. And when David did this with Bathsheba, he turned against David. You remember that? When Absalom came along, then Ahithophel gave counsel against David. And his counsel was excellent. It would have destroyed David. And God intervened and protected David. But Ahithophel turned against David because of what he did with Bathsheba. That's honor your father and your mother. That's seven, at least seven of ten commandments that David violated when he committed that sin with Bathsheba. Now, bring Absalom into the picture. If Absalom would have come to, uh, to uh, David and asked him and said, Father... Which one of the Ten Commandments is it okay if I break? How many Ten Commandments? How many commandments is it okay if I break? What do you think David would have said? He said, don't break any of them, right? That's what I think he'd have said. He said, no, you don't break the commandments. And yet David himself, in that act with Bathsheba, broke at least seven of the Ten Commandments. The lesson here is... is uh, this is about David and Absalom. When we expect more of our children than what we're willing to live, it will turn them away. Does that make sense? We expect more maturity from our children than what we ex ex ourselves are willing to do. We expect more self-discipline from them than that we ourselves are willing to live. More, uh, more character. We expect more of them spiritually than what we ourselves are willing to, to provide and be. We're going to drive them away. And I think in, in David and Absalom's case, I, I think that had to be a factor in Absalom's rebellion as, as I look at this. Because David, David knew better. He knew better. But he didn't do better. He deliberately chose to violate what he knew. He went against his better knowledge. And God brought judgment to him for it. In fact, he sent... He sent the prophet to him. And going through this story here in 2 Samuel 11, it's, it's, it's a sorry, it's a sordid affair here. It's a very sorry thing. Uh, David tried to cover up his sin. And, you know, he had Uriah come in from the battle and, and told Uriah, go down to your house and, uh, you know, spend the night there, thinking that that would somehow cover Bathsheba's pregnancy. And, and Uriah was a righteous man. He was a Hittite, actually, but he was a righteous man. And, and he, he said to David, he says, no, I can't go down to my wife 
if my comrades are out in the field, tenting, camping on the hillside, in the cold, in the weather, in the wet, how could I take this pleasure for myself? I can't do that. And he slept in the doorway of the king's house. And the king kept him for a second day and made him drunk and, and was thinking somehow he would, he would get him to go down to his house and spend the night with his wife. And Uriah refused to do it. He was a righteous and just man. And he had a, a sense of honor for his fellow soldiers out on the battlefield and loyalty to them. And he refused to do it. David then had him murdered sent a message with Uriah, a death note actually, with Uriah to Joab, instructing Joab to place Uriah right up front where the heat of the battle was. And that's what Joab did, and Uriah was killed. Actually, he was murdered. David had him murdered. And so it's, it's a sordid tale. It's, it's really a sorry thing that David did here. And the, the more he, he tried to cover up, the worse it got. <laughs> that's how sin is. The more we try to cover up, the less we repent, the worse it gets. <clears throat> and so the message came back to David that Uriah is killed. And so David uh, allowed Bathsheba a time for mourning and then uh, married her. And everything was fine on the surface. And David was called, he's in the book of Acts, he's called a man after God's own heart. And I believe he was. But he also had some major lapses in his morality, in his life. He, he committed some sins that were, at least in our day, we'd say they were really terrible. All sin is terrible. But when you look at what David did, you just have to shake your head and say, David, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? You know, you just, just can't wrap your mind around what David was trying to do here, why he did it. He fell into sin. He was trapped by Satan, and he fell for the trap, and he committed sin. He, committed, he broke these, these commandments. <clears throat> and the prophet came to him and had a little story for him. He said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom as one unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. So here's a man that was taking advantage of his neighbor, a rich man that had plenty. But instead of using his own flocks, this is a, I don't know if it's a true story necessarily, but it's at least an illustration that Nathan the prophet gave to David. This rich man took extreme advantage of a poor man beside him. And David got angry. His anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And David said to David, Thou art the man. And David understood he was caught. Now we have Psalm 51 where David repented of what he did here. And it's, it's a genuine repentance. It's a, it's a beautifully written prayer. It's a beautiful confession. It's a beautiful repentance. But it did not negate the consequences of his deed. <clears throat> and uh, one thing I'd like to ask David is, why did it take so long to repent? He only repented when he was caught. Until then, he was covering it up. 
But when he was caught, then he did repent. And that's to his credit. And Nathan said to him, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hands of Saul, and I gave thee my master's house and the master's wives unto thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife, and so on. And so a severe judgment came on David and his household because of what he did. And <clears throat> I have often wondered what transpired in David's household as a result of this? Were there discussions among his staff, among his sons? You know, did they discover, did, did they talk about this to family? Did they have a family altar? <laughs> I don't know if they did or not. It doesn't say. But, you know, what an opportunity this would have been for David to come to his family and simply confess his deed to his family and, and humble himself and admit his, his fault, admit his wrong. It would have been humiliating. It would have been terribly humiliating, humiliating. And yet, that would have spared him a lot of grief later on. Don't you think so? I think, I think it's possible not only was his personal altar in bad repair, but his family altar as well. He missed a golden opportunity here to level with his family, humble himself, and seek their forgiveness, and, seek, uh, and, and find healing together with them. He missed a golden opportunity. And I'm sorry he didn't do it because it brought severe consequences to him later on. And so David repented and this child was born and died as was prophesied. That was a judgment of God from God against David for what he did with Bathsheba. The child died and David took it very personally and he realized this was the hand of God against him and he wept and mourned. Uh, but when when he was able to work through that, and life went on. <clears throat> now, later on then, as the story goes on, in verse chapter 13, David's son Amnon got into trouble. And the story there is of Amnon and Tamar. And you know this story. Uh, I'll just read a part of it here. Verse chapter 13, It came to pass after this time that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. And he said unto him, Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And so on. And so they conspired together and... Uh, Actually, Amnon didn't love Tamar. He lusted for her. But they conspired and arranged it so that uh, Amnon was alone in the house. Tamar was alone in the house with him, and, and he violated her, did an awful deed to her. And she, she, was, she was a victim. She really was. <clears throat> 
After he had violated her, it says in verse 15, then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her. And Amnon said unto her, Arise, be gone. Then she said unto him, There is no cause. This evil in sending me away is greater than the other that thou didst unto me. But he would not hearken unto her. Then he called his servant that ministered unto him and said, Put now this woman out from me and bolt the door after her. And she had a garment of diverse colors upon her, for with such robes were the king's daughters that were virgins apparelled. Then his servant brought her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and rent her garment of diverse colors that was on her, and laid her hand on her head and went on crying. And Absalom her brother said unto her, Hath Amnon thy brother been with thee? But hold now thy peace, my sister, he is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. But when David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. And Absalom spake unto his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his Tamar, sister Tamar. And so, first of all, David had done what he did with Bathsheba and had a hard time repenting, but he managed to get there. Now later, his own son Amnon does a very similar thing. And this time it's a little closer home. It's not someone outside of the family, it's someone in the family. And so they have this... this this terrible situation within the family. Notice that it says David was very wroth. But what else did David do? What else did he do? Nothing. Nothing. Isn't that sad? What could David have done here? Your dads, your fathers. What could David have done? If David, David was in your office asking you for advice right at this point, what would you advise David to do? Okay, talk to Amnon. Okay. What other advice do you have? That's good. Hold him accountable. Good. What else? What if Amnon would have said, but you did it too? What else could David have done? Mm -hmm. I just wish he'd have humbled himself, gone to Amnon and said, Amnon, what you did was very wrong. But I want to tell you, I did it before you. And I failed, and I'm sorry. And it could have cried tears of repentance on Amnon's shoulder. I think that would have been so effective, could have been so effective in healing the hurts that were happening here. But instead, David just got wroth. He got angry, flew off the handle and shouted and made some noise, but did nothing else. Nothing else. Sometimes we fathers are that way. We get upset. We shout. We make moves. There's action. And yet, we don't really resolve the problem. We make it worse. Can you identify with that? I can. The way forward is always humility, repentance, coming to the end of ourselves, asking for mercy, pleading God for help. That's always the way forward. I wish David would have done that, but he didn't. He didn't. Maybe you too. Pardon? Maybe you too. That's a good point. That's a good point, brother. What do you suppose he could have done for her? Mm -hmm. As a father, he had not protected her. 
Yeah. yeah. That's excellent observation. Appreciate that. Yeah. She was a victim in many ways. And he did nothing to help her. Did nothing at all. It says, she remained desolate in her brother Absalom's house. What I take for that to mean is that she had lost her eligibility to be married. She's no longer eligible to be married. I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe some of you can help me. It says she remained desolate in her brother's house. Her life changed forever. She was scarred for life because of what Amnon did to her. Now, what does the law, what did the law say should happen to someone like Amnon that did what he did? Do you know? Stoning. That was clear. The book of Deuteronomy, also Leviticus. If a man does this to a maid, they were to take him out and stone him. That was God's remedy for sin. Deal with it. Expose it. Purge it. Did that happen to Amnon? Why not? Why didn't it happen to Amnon? I think it's a good question. For one thing, he was the king's son. He was the oldest of the king's sons. And according to normal protocols, he would have been first in line for the throne, right? As David's oldest son. So there was an exception. I'm reading some things in here. I don't know all these details, of course not. But I'm, I'm reading some things in here, so bear with me. But there was an exception made for him. He wasn't stoned. He was given special privileges even though he was absolutely guilty for what he did, and it was absolutely terrible what he did. And we don't even read that, we don't even read that he repented. Um, he got away with it. Now who was responsible to see that justice was dealt here? Who? The king, which was? David. David. David abdicated his responsibility here. Fathers, don't do that. Don't abdicate your responsibility. Take it on yourselves. Engage the problems of your family. Engage the issues of the day and work them out with your family. Don't abdicate. David here went absent without leave. He really did. Who else was responsible to see that justice was served to Amnon? Pardon? Uh, well, not really. The priests, yeah. The spiritual leaders. The leaders who were supposed to be looking out for the spiritual welfare of the people. Here was a sin committed in the presence, in the, in the public eye. This happened in the royal household. It had to be known among the people. You know, there was, there was a lot of... of uh, of drama took place here, and there, there was wrong. There was, there was a lot of things wrong, and the spiritual leaders sat on their hands and didn't do anything. I think that's so sad. They had a responsibility, and they didn't fill it. 
Now picture Absalom. Think of Absalom watching all of this. He knew what happened to his sister Tamar. He knew who, was, who had done it. He knew who was responsible to see that justice was served. His father and the high priest. And he saw they did nothing. Absolutely nothing. Can you understand an anger growing up in his heart? Can you understand that? Can you understand a turning away from God on his part? See, here was a father that did not look out for his spiritual welfare, did not meet his emotional needs, did not care about what happened to Tamar. Here was a father that failed miserably. And Absalom is getting angry. Can you understand that? I can. Does that make it right what Absalom did? No. Absalom is absolutely responsible for his, his actions and what he did. But David's lack of, of dealing with the situation certainly contributed to Absalom's rebellion. Would you say that? Would you agree with that? I think that's true. Absalom was responsible for everything he did. And yet David somehow contributed to that. <clears throat> Here was a father that maybe he was looking to someone else to take care of the situation. I'm suggesting that maybe that was the case. Maybe David felt he wasn't credible because of his own past. And he wanted someone else to deal with the situation. But here again, if we as parents look to someone else to fulfill our responsibilities, we're always going to be disappointed. Always. If we don't stand in the gap for our children, if we don't provide for them spiritually, emotionally, and physically as we're called to and as we're able to, uh, and we let someone else do that, we will never be happy with the final re We won't be as happy with the final results. David wasn't either. And so here was a father that uh, I'm suggesting expected more of his children than he himself was willing to live. And secondly, he failed to, to meet the emotional needs of his children and look to someone else to fill them. That brought damage to his home. So Absalom, in his anger and in his... Uh, Desperation for something to happen did something. It says here, verse 23, It came to pass after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal Hazor, which is beside Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, now thy servant hath sheep shears. Let the king, I beseech thee, and his servants go with thy servant. And the king said to Absalom, Nay, my son, let, not, let us not all now go, lest we be chargeable unto thee. And he pressed him, howbeit he would not go, but blessed him. Then said Absalom, If not, I pray thee, let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said unto him, Why should he go with thee? But Absalom pressed him, that he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Now Absalom had commanded his servants, saying, Mark ye now, when Abnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say unto you, Smite Amnon, then kill him. Fear not, have not I commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. And the servants of Absalom did, as Amnon, did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and every man gat him up upon his mule and fled. 
And so Absalom did what the church leaders should have done. Right? Absalom killed Amnon. No, it wasn't his role to do that. But the irony of it is the rebel, the one that we denigrate as a rebel, was the one that did the right thing. (laughs) Does that make any sense? He's one that actually did what should have happened to Amnon. And yet I'm not defending him because he was a rebel and he is responsible for his sin against God. Absolutely. I'm not making any excuse for Absalom at all. And yet, note that. That he's the one that actually did what the king and what the high priest should have done. And so, because of all that, Amnon, or Absalom had to flee. It says, Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. That was his grandfather. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And so, there was a break here in relationship. The soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon, seeing he was dead. I think David was so conflicted here, he didn't right know what to do with himself. He longed to see Absalom, and yet he didn't. He loved him, and yet he hated him. I think David wasn't sure what to do with his emotions. He was just so conflicted in his heart, in his family, his life. It was such a conflicting time for him. And he didn't know how to handle it. And so, in the middle of this emotional distress that David was feeling, in chapter 14 here, Joab hatched a plan where David was convinced, was persuaded to bring Absalom back. And uh, it's an interesting story there in chapter 14. I won't take time to read it here. But Joab conspired with this woman, and through her words and so on, David was persuaded to bring Absalom back. And so the message goes out to Absalom, come back, the king wants to see you. Now remember, Absalom's been away for three years. That's a long time. He hasn't seen David for three years. And he's, he's a frustrated, angry person. He had taken matters in his own hands and killed Amnon and, and dealt with that situation. And yet, somehow justice wasn't complete there was something wrong. There was still something missing because the people responsible to do something had done nothing. And there was injustice here. Our children are experts at injustice. They can spot it every time. They're experts at, at uh, knowing when we're not just as we should be. And they remind us of it. And so the message came to Absalom. Come back. The king wants to see you. So can you sense... Can you feel an eagerness in Absalom's part? Finally, the king wants to see me. Finally, we can talk about this. Finally, we can bring this out in the open and resolve this issue. Finally, we can come to the bottom of this this whole matter. Can you imagine maybe that Absalom would have felt that way? It seems to me, it feels to me that that's how Absalom would have felt. And so Absalom comes back with a certain amount of eagerness and trepidation, not knowing how it's going to go with David and yet eager to see him. I believe he was very eager to see him. And yet, when Absalom came back, notice what happened. thought I had the verse here. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. 
And the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. Can you believe that Absalom was disappointed? I think he was. I think it would have been a terrible disappointment. He was away for three years. Three years. Hadn't seen David. Hadn't been... This thing was not resolved. Remember what I said, what we pointed out earlier, how that unresolved conflict gets worse and worse. The consequences get worse and worse. We see that here as well. There was unresolved conflict here. And David was running away from it. He wasn't willing to face it. He was the one that partly caused the hurt. He should have been pursuing Ahab. I'm sorry, Absalom. And so when Absalom came back, it would have been a golden opportunity to finally level with Absalom and humble himself and just find reconciliation and repentance together with Absalom. But instead, when Absalom returned to Jerusalem, at David's request, David said, don't let him see my face. Just let him go to his own house. And he saw not the king's face. And it says in verse 28, so Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. So now five years have passed. Five years. And two of those years, he's living in Jerusalem, the same place where David does. Jerusalem isn't, wasn't all that big. I wasn't, some of you have been to Jerusalem, so I think it's bigger today than it used to be. But this time, Jerusalem wasn't all that big. And Absalom's house in Jerusalem couldn't have been far from David's house. Couldn't have been far at all. Maybe just a block away. And I'm, again, I'm supposing, okay, and just follow with me. But it would have been easy for Absalom to see David in his palace and yet never talk to him for another two years. Can you sense a growing anger and disappointment in Absalom? I can. Here was a man, here was a, a young man, a son, that longed for reconciliation with his father, but his father withheld it from him, would not open his heart to him. David must have been an awful conflict in his heart. He loved him, and yet he hated him. He wanted to see him, and yet he didn't want to see him. Must have been a terrible time of conflict. Such it is when we don't fully and completely repent. And so it says Absalom got desperate. And so he said to Joab, he said, why would you bring me back? I'm reading this here from verse 29 on. Uh, you, you sent for me, but the king won't see me. And, and, so, and Job wouldn't talk to him. So jo, uh, Absalom, in verse 30, Therefore he said unto his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. And Job arose and came to Absalom unto his house and said unto him, Wherefore have thy servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Because I sent unto thee, saying, Come hither, that I may send thee to the king, to say, Wherefore am I come from Geshur? It had been good for me to have been there still. Now therefore let me see the king's face, and if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. So the Joab came to the king and told him, and when David had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself and his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So finally they met, but it was not a satisfying meeting. There was no repentance, no breakthrough here that both of them needed. It just didn't happen. And so finally Absalom had had enough. Finally he'd had enough. He just made up his mind. There's no hope here. Nothing's going to change. And that took him a step further. I would emphasize that what Absalom did was absolutely wrong. His rebellion was sin, and it is sin. 
And when he faces God, he will face the judgment that is necessary for his rebellion and sin. But I think it's also true that David had a role to play in his rebellion. David had something to do with pushing Absalom to that direction. And I guess that's my challenge for us as fathers. If we're not meeting the emotional needs of our children, we're going to push them away. They're going to turn away to someone else who will meet their emotional needs. And then they will find answers and spiritual direction, but it won't always be what it should be if we abdicate our responsibility. David should have reached out, pursued his son, but he failed him. It's a very sad story, but it's one we can learn from. And so, finally, Absalom had had enough. It says in 2 Samuel 15, came to pass after this, Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom said unto him and said, Of what city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is one of, one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto the king, said unto him, There are three things here that Absalom did. See, thy matters are good and right, but there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, O oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man with, which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And on this matter did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And I don't know how long a time this was, but there was a period of time here involved where uh, Absalom stood at the city gate and watched for people, for troubled people, watched for rebels. Interesting how rebels find each other. You ever notice that? You can take a group of young people to be total strangers to each other and put two rebels in that group. They don't know each other. But on the very first day, guess what? They find each other. You ever notice that? Their hearts beat alike and they find each other. It shows in their faces. It shows in their mannerisms. It shows in their words. But they find each other. And so Absalom is standing here in the city gate watching people coming in, looking for the rebels. The, the, the city gate here, and some of you have been to Poland. I was, had the privilege of being at Warsaw and saw the old city gate there. Uh, it's a beautiful piece of work. It was an archway, actually. And you walk through this gate and the arch, and then there were coves on either side. It was a wall there with little coves in there, and that's where the business of the city would take place. Uh, your, your legal people were there, and your... Your uh, people that did important papers and the, the businessmen of the day, that's where they sat and talked to each other and did their business. Remember when Boaz uh, needed to do the, the arrangement with Ruth? He was a kinsman redeemer. He went to the city gate and met with the people there and did his legal business with the people in the city gate. That's where Absalom was. He stayed in the city gate watching people coming in with their business, the affairs of the city, the affairs of the day, and people would come in for judgment, for decisions, and wanted to talk to David or his, his people. And so Absalom's here watching the people, watching their faces, and he spots the rebels. And he walks up to them, and he says, uh, where are you from? You know, what, of what city are you? And then they'd begin this conversation. And, the, and essentially what he did is, what Absalom would ask is, so what's your story? What happened to you? And Absalom would listen. It says here, Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right. And so the first thing that Absalom did is simply listen to their story. 
Every rebel has a story to tell. Every rebel. Our sons and daughters have stories to tell. And sometimes we don't take time to listen to their stories. We don't want to. We don't have time to. Their stories perplex us. But they have stories to tell, things to say. And they want us to listen to them. We need to take the time to listen. One of the things that Linda and I have discovered is that with teenagers and young adults in our house, we get less sleep than we ever did. We used to think, you know, with the children when they were younger, you know, they would tend to keep you up at night sometimes and, you know, you'd kind of work with that, but you would get through it and you'd think, well, in the future they won't be waking up at all hours of the night. They'll be able to sleep the night and it's going to be a little easier, have more sleep. What we've discovered is that when we think it's time to go to bed is when they want to talk. There's nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong at all. And so what do you do? You sit up and talk. You listen to them. You listen to their heart. You pursue them. You ask them questions. You give them the opportunity to share their heart and to bear whatever is troubling them, to, to bear it out. And it, it really does work that way for us. I think we get less sleep at night now than we ever did, but we love it. It's a blessing. It's a joy. And I want to encourage you, take the time to listen to the hearts of your sons and daughters, especially as they go older. They have a lot of stories to tell, a lot of things to share. And if you give them that opportunity, you will win their heart. That's one way to, to earn, to, to meet their emotional needs, is simply listen to their story. Allow them to express themselves and listen to their heart. That's what Absalom did. He, he watched these people coming in the gate. He'd spot the rebels and he'd say, what happened to you? What's your story? And the, the guy was full up to his neck and he just wanted to tell it all. You know, he, he was ready to tell the whole story. And Absalom listened. It can be frustrating if you have a story to tell and no one listens. I remember when our first daughter was, our first child was born. It was our daughter. Of course, I was all excited. It was a wonderful event and we were just rejoicing. And, you know, Linda was... Uh, laid up some with, with the baby and all, and, and I was in the house, and the phone would ring, and, you know, I'd say, hello, you know, I was, I was all excited about this newborn baby in the house, and, and people would say, uh, is this the Philip Byler residence? Yeah, and you have a baby? Oh, yeah, and I, I was full up, up to here. I had lots of things to say, and they'd say, could we talk to your wife? Oh, I had a story to tell, and they weren't ready to listen to me. That was frustrating. It really was. Now, it was just a small thing, you know. And I easily got over that. But our children have stories to tell. And we frustrate them by not giving them the opportunity to share those stories, to share their hearts. I think that's a very important matter. In meeting their emotion, that's a very important way to meet their emotional needs. Listen to their stories. So that's what Absalom did. He simply listened to their stories. He listened to them. Uh, I have a friend that was in Western Romania for a number of years had a very interesting ministry. He uh, took a little bit of training to know how to treat feet. You know, just take care of people's feet. And he got to uh, Romania and he, he visited some nursing homes there and he asked permission. And you probably know who I mean, brother. Uh, he got permission from the directors of these nursing homes to go in and, and treat the older people's feet. He'd take off their shoes and socks and clean their feet and trim their toenails. And, you know, older people... Yeah, they have feet problems. They can't wash their own feet, especially in a setting like they were in Romania. They didn't have people caring for them. And so when uh, Brother Anton came in and, 
and was ministering to these older, they loved it. They just loved it. They opened their hearts to him. And I asked him one time, so what do you do? He said, why well, go in and take their shoes off and listen to their stories? <laughs> that was his ministry. And he had a wonderful ministry. The last I knew, I'm not, I don't know, it was well over a dozen, I think almost 20 nursing homes. He was making regular visits to, visiting the older people, just hearing their stories. They loved him. They looked forward to his visits on a regular basis. It's a wonderful ministry. All he did was just listen to their stories and minister to them. There's people who have stories to tell, and we need to listen to them. We need to open our hearts to them and just simply allow them to share. That's what Absalom did. And by doing so, he met the emotional needs of these rebels, and he won their heart. The second thing that Absalom did, which is very important, as they were sharing their story in verse 3, he'd say, you have a valid concern. What you're saying is absolutely true. But I'm sorry to tell you, the king won't hear you. And he'd tell his story, how my father won't have time for you. He didn't have time for me either. And he won't have time for you. And I just wish there'd be someone that could take care of your problem. And, and see, it wasn't long until he was presenting himself as the one to be able to take care of their problems. And he identified with him. He said, see, your matters are good. You have a valid concern. And he would identify. First of all, he listened to their story. Then he would identify with them. And that's what they wanted. They want someone to be in the trenches with them, someone to fight their battles with them, someone to help them bear their burdens, someone to be with them. And that's what Absalom did to these people, and he won their heart. Verse 4, Absalom said, Moreover, O that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. That was a, that was a cry. We need justice. There's injustice happening here. We need justice. Don't you hear that sometimes? There's a lot of hurts because of injustice. There's a lot of crying out. We want justice. We want, we want this thing resolved. We want action. We want moving here. Something has to give. We want justice. And Absalom said, oh, if I were the judge, I would do justice. And that appealed to these rebels. That they opened their hearts to him. So first of all, he listened to their story. Secondly, he identified with them. And thirdly then, in verse 5, it was so that when any man came nigh him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. Absalom simply showed him love. He loved him for what he was, without condition. <coughs> he didn't say, well, you know, yeah, you have a problem, but we'll have to consider about We'll have to think about that. He loved him. He accepted him for what he was. And he allowed him to be what he was. And sometimes our children need to have that kind of space. We need to allow them to be what they are. And win their heart and lead them to where they need to go. But when we try to control them. See, as children, we can control them to a great extent. But when they become teenagers and young adults, we can't control them anymore. The more we try to control them, the more we lose them. And so it's important that we win their hearts and we allow them to express themselves, but in the process of expressing themselves, we need to guide them in the way of truth as well. And God gives us wisdom. That's something I'm still working on, to be honest with you. This is a message for me tonight. We still have children at home in our house, and we still have issues that we deal with and we're dealing with right now. And I have concerns for my family. I have burdens for them. And I, I don't know what my family is going to look like 30 years from now. I really don't. I pray that God will bless us and guide and direct us. 
but I have concerns. And I'm, this is a message for myself very much. So the third thing here that Absalom did is that he loved them. He showed them love and acceptance. And he won their hearts. And so there was a, there was a rebellion here. And, and it's, it's a very sorry tale. It really is. It's, a, it's quite a story, actually. It's a very sad story. But through all this, and through all this, and Absalom, uh, he got to the point where there were enough of people on his side, and they conspired with him against King David, and they declared Absalom king, and David had to flee, and he fled for his life. And the story is, he, was, he was, had to be in the wilderness for a while, away from Jerusalem, and, and Absalom fulfilled the prophecy of Nathan against David and his household. You know, he, there was just a lot of things happened there, a lot of really sad events, sad, sinful things happened there. And, and it was a rough time for Israel. And so David was out on the field. He was out away from Jerusalem, and there was a big battle. And you know the story, how that, how that uh, uh, David had given instructions that Absalom was not to be hurt and yet he was killed. Joab actually killed him, saw to it that he was killed. And <clears throat> this was such a, a sore grief to David. And I don't understand David. I really don't. I'm not even going to try to understand him. He was just such a conflicted man here. He both hated and loved Absalom at the same time. And after, after Absalom was killed, notice what he says. The king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, said, thus he said, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God I had died for thee, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What I see here is complete repentance. Finally, finally, he completely repented, but it was too late for Absalom. Don't you think it would have been much better if David would have come to this place of complete repentance way before this point? I think he could have spared himself when Absalom came back from Geshur after three years away. I think he would have repented like this with Absalom. It could have changed the whole thing. I think it could have. And I just want to say, I think it's a lesson for us. I don't know where you are with your children. I have no idea. I don't know you people. And so I, what I'm speaking here is just as it relates to my own experience and what I feel the Lord wants me to share. But when we as fathers fail... That's not a reason to quit. It's not a reason to fold up and say, well, there's too much water over the dam. I, I, I can't anymore. No. Remember I said, I think it was last evening, there's two kinds of parents. It's not good parents and bad parents. We've all failed as parents in some way or other. We're all bad parents. But there's parents who quit and there's, there's those who don't. Let's not be parents that quit. Let's keep on. Even if, when we, if we have failures, even when we fail, even when our children rebel against us and turn against us, even with all that happens, there's never a time to quit. Deuteronomy 2 says, or 6, verse, verse 7 says, we're to teach our children all the time. When we walk by the way, when we lie down, when we rise up, when we lay, you know, go in and out, it, we're never to quit. It's always to keep on going. And so I just want to encourage us. I don't know what discouragements you've faced with your family or what you will face, but never quit. And take fresh courage. There's always hope. 
there's hope and there's, there's resolution, there's joy. And it, again, it comes back to our personal altar. It really does. It comes back to our personal relationship with God. It comes back to finding healing for the hurts in our own life and then allowing God to enable us and empower us so that his spirit and his power can go out and flow in our family and in people around us. But it begins with us and God. And he gives us wisdom. He gives us understanding. And our children will make decisions of their own choice. They'll make decisions that will disappoint us, probably will. And yet, there's never cause to quit. We do what we can. We, do, we fulfill our responsibility with them and allow God to work in their hearts and lives. So again, our children have needs, physical needs, emotional needs, and spiritual needs. The physical needs are easy. The spiritual needs are, I think, most important. And yet we begin to meet their needs by meeting their emotional needs. That is the doorway to their heart through their emotion, by meeting their emotional needs. And then God will give us wisdom and direction and opportunities to meet their spiritual needs as well. So I just wish you God's best, God's blessings. You've been a tremendous audience. And I appreciate the things you've talked to me about. I appreciate your encouragements. appreciate your love. Do pray for us. Uh, and we'll pray for you. We have many needs. We have decisions to make. We have a way to go. Our journey continues as yours does as well. So let's be praying for each other and let's keep on following God. Um, just going to do this yet. Give you one final uh, opportunity. If God has spoken to you about things in your life that you want to make a decision on and make a commitment on, I just invite you to make that commitment to God. Why don't we stand to our feet? I want to pray for you. Let's pray. As I'm praying, just search your heart before God. If God is speaking to you about something that you need to make a commitment on, make that commitment. I think it's really important that we make commitments to God because those commitments will become stepping stones to move forward in our life. They'll become definite points to stand on from which to take the next step. So if God is, is prompting you to make a commitment about any area, anything we've talked about this whole weekend, I just encourage you to do that while I pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would minister to us and draw us to yourself and make us more like you. Lord, would you speak to us? And if there's anything in our hearts and lives that you want us to change, any area you want us to make commitments on, oh God, lead us to making those commitments. Help us to be specific in those commitments and help us to be faithful in carrying out those commitments. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that speaks to us and draws us to yourself. Oh, Father, I pray there's anyone here who has never made a commitment to you as the Lord Jesus Christ, has never become a Christian. I pray that you would draw them to yourself and, and lead them to draw them to yourself and lead them to the cross. I pray that if there's anyone here like that, they would make a commitment to salvation and establish an altar, establish a relationship with you. And Lord, I pray for every father and every mother. I pray especially for the fathers. Help us not to abdicate our responsibilities. Help us to not turn away from the needs in our families. Help us to make it a priority to meet the emotional needs of our children and of our wives and of people in our houses. Lord, I pray that you would guide us and lead us in working with people and make us vessels for your glory and use us for your kingdom. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that needs to make a commitment, you would just draw them and lead them to making that commitment, whatever it is you want them to. And Lord, we give ourselves to you. We ask for your further direction and kind blessing. We ask you to go with us as we part. Keep us in your care. 
We thank you in Jesus' name. And again, I just want you to keep your eyes closed. But if you've made a specific commitment, just as a means of establishing that before God, just put your hands up and then down. God bless you. God bless you. May God help you keep all your commitments. God will be honored and be, be, uh, be much favored as you keep those commitments and you flesh out his principles in your everyday lives. Heavenly Father, thank you again for ministering to us and drawing us to yourself. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ who died on the cross to save us from our sins. Thank you for the good news of salvation that you shared with us and that you want us to share with others. Help us to be faithful in going out from here to share the good news of the gospel with people around us. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the leaders. I pray that you would bless them together. May this congregation go strong and be strong. Help them to be effective and faithful in this community and other places where you lead them. I pray that you would lead them to, to higher ground spiritually and much growth as a congregation and in the community here. We bless your name. We love you. Thank you, God, that you're the ultimate. Thank you that nothing ever surprises you. Thank you that you're able. Thank you that you are, Lord, you're, you're awesome. You're unique. You're almighty. You're the only God. You know our thoughts. You know us inside and out. You know the beginning and the end at the same time. And you know everything in between. Oh, God, we trust you. We love you. We adore you. We give our hearts to you. We worship you here this evening. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.